My name is John Becker. For the past four decades, I've dedicated my life to protecting tactical operators. During this time, I've worked with many of the world's top law enforcement and military units. As a result, I've had the privilege of working with the amazing leaders who take teams into the world's most dangerous situations. The goal of this podcast is to share their stories in hopes of making us all better leaders, better thinkers, and better people. Welcome to The Debrief. My guest today is Lieutenant Lee McMillian. Lee is currently one of the two lieutenants leading the Los Angeles Police Department's Metropolitan Division D Platoon, which is better known as LAPD SWAT. In total, Lee has spent 33 years as a Los Angeles policeman, of which 23 years have been spent at Metro, 21 with D Platoon. Lee is one of only three men to have ever served at all possible ranks at D Platoon, officer, plus one, sergeant, and lieutenant. Lee, I appreciate you joining me today on The Debrief. Thank you, John. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's start with, with your history. Let's go back to kind of where, where you started when your career started with LAPD. So I started the police academy when I was 21 years old. That was May of 1988. Uh, after the police academy, my first patrol assignment was Rampart Division. Uh, then I went to Southeast Division. I uh, was there for almost four years. Um, I, did, I did a very brief stint as a farms instructor. Um, I won't get into um, how I had to navigate that into my, my career path to keep my P3 stripes and remain eligible to go to Metro Division. Fair enough. And then um, I went to Metro Division in April of 1994. Uh, two years later, I went, to, I went through SWAT selection. And um, then uh, after uh, assignment to SWAT, I was in the platoon for 11 years and the back five of those, a correction, the back four of those, I was an element leader. Okay. And then at that point, what happened? You Did you promote and rotate out? Or? I did. So it was summer of 2007. I made sergeant. I went to 77th Division where I spent about 19 months. And then I just the, as good fortune has it, I was able to come back to SWAT as a sergeant or a squad leader. Got it. And then how long were you there the second time? So I, I was a sergeant in SWAT for a little under four years um, when I just took the lieutenant's test and my number came up. So I made lieutenant in October of 2012. And then um, I was gone about two and a half years before once again the, the stars aligned. And uh, I'll have to say that each time I left SWAT and promoted out, I never expected to be able to come back. Wow. Um, yeah. You just have to be good in your, you know, in your mind, it's, it's that pyramid structure where like there are less positions the higher you go in the rank structure. Sure. So uh, when, when you promote out, you have to be good with never ever coming back and just find another career path. And, and there's plenty of great oppor- uh, job opportunities on the LAPD. And I was going to find my, my way into other career opportunities. But just as uh, good fortune and cosmic energy have it, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was able to come back. Um, not only as a super, as a sergeant, but also as a lieutenant. So why don't we talk a little bit about the history of D Platoon? For I mean, I think everybody's familiar with LA SWAT, but like from from a history standpoint, when did D Platoon start? So LAPD SWAT started in um, the first roll call was actually December of 1966. So it had been on the back of the 1965 riots in Los Angeles. It had been after the Charles Whitman incident, which was, I believe, uh, the summer of 1966, the te- the Texas, Texas Tower. Tower. And so there were these uh, increasingly provocative police incidents where the law enforcement community realized that there would need to be uh, enhancement of tactical proficiency and uh, resources to handle these. So again, it was December of 1966 was the first roll call, although we say 1967 is our anniversary year because it was late in December and we just don't want to eat up that whole year. So uh, it was a part-time platoon uh, for nearly five years until November of 1971. During the, the part-time uh, period, there were 176 personnel, men, who rotated through the platoon. And it was a part-time assignment, as I said. So you could be a Hollywood detective or you could be a patrol cop in uh, just in any division. And those personnel would get together for a couple days uh, every month and train in what they were still figuring out were the responsibilities of SWAT. And if you figure the personnel, um, we had uh, Korean War vets. We, it was during the Vietnam era, so some Vietnam vets. Uh, there might even even been a World War II vet in there that would have been quite tenured uh, on the department at the time. 
And then uh, after some successes, uh, specifically there was a, a Black Panther incident in 1969, and then in November of 71, uh, SWAT came to Metro Division as a proper platoon and with the designator of D platoon. So, and that's where we've been ever since. So it, it, in 71 was the point that it becomes a full-time assignment and is stood up as, as a full-time team. Correct. Okay, how big was it prior to that? Like how many, how many personnel? So uh, as a part-time team, it was 10, squ uh, correction, uh, four squads of 10 each. Okay, so, so about 40. Yeah, four, 40, so four squads, 10 each. And then when it came to D, uh, Metro as D platoon, uh, about the first couple deployment periods, it remained four squads, 10 each, and then soon thereafter bumped to six squads of 10 each, so 60 officers, and that's our structure today, is okay. 60 officers. We actually have seven sergeants. Uh, six of those sergeants are squad leaders, as I mentioned, the six uh, yep. 10 officer squads, and then we have an additional administrative sergeant position uh, that can rotate through if, if a sergeant is injured on duty or goes on vacation, somebody can backfill the squad and also ha handle admin. And then there are two lieutenants, and the two Got lieutenants it. are myself, and then my partner is uh, Ruben Lopez. And um, after, an incident in 2005 is when they expanded that structure. So it would just be um, greater lieutenant uh, coverage. And uh, bottom line is just one guy can't stay awake that much. Yeah, so. it's fair. So 1971, the unit becomes a full-time unit. By then, the Black Panther shootout was in 1969? Correct. So 69 is Black Panther shootout, 71, the team becomes full-time, 74, uh, the SLA shootout occurs. Yes. Okay. So it's kind of pre pre full time and then post full time SLA happens, and that's really the genesis of the team as most people see it. Correct. So uh, when it was a part time team, um, there were there were you know, various successes at at uh, different deployments, and and one of the the bigger, more prominent was obviously the the Black Panther incident in 1969. So actually, if you look at our at our emblem, we've got it's the eagle and you know holding the lightning bolt and the banner. And then the banner has a 41 and a 54 on it. So the 41 is, uh, stands for 41st and Central, which is the intersection of the Black Panther incident in 1969. And then if we're gonna talk about the SLA incident in 1974, then that was at 54th and Compton. So just uh, two significant landmark incidents with success and, and brought uh, notoriety to the team and also uh, fostered that confidence with the chain of command that this is a team that can handle these sorts of incidents and, and um, it just furthered the evolution. Yeah, because I mean, 74, well, even, even 71 when the team becomes full-time, this is still a pretty radical idea. Yes. Right, like this is this is not you know LAPD literally coined the term SWAT, right. and this is kind of a radical idea to have a, a you know a special weapons and tactics team, um, especially a full time special weapons and tactics team. Um, talk a little bit about the origin, and, and it was, so it was Jeff Rogers and and Daryl Gates, if I remember correctly, that coined the phrase. So uh, I know Daryl Gates was an inspector in uh, 19, you know, December of 66 when this whole thing started. So obviously he was a, a you know, very prominent chief of ours for I believe 13 years. But um, before he had promoted to that rank, uh, he had this concept of a uh, police unit with enhanced capability, um, just watching the, 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 the trends in law enforcement and the, the increased um, uh, danger, provocative nature of them, and so what are we going to do to prepare for it when it hits Los Angeles? So yes, uh, SWAT was the brainchild of Daryl Gates, then inspector, and he was actually a driver for Chief Parker at the time. Yeah, I remember that. And then, um, then obviously, as he promoted to uh, the rank of chief, then the platoon had wide support throughout the chain of command because he is now the chief, and it was his concept. I, I know that there's some, some I don't say conflict, disagreement, but um, there. Uh, the, the overall premise is that SWAT started with LAPD. And there may be other law enforcement entities out there. I, I'm not going to you know, arrogantly state that it, you know, it started with us and, and that's the way it yeah. is. You know, there are 17,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. So if, if one of them had a variation on the theme and just didn't call it SWAT at the time, I'd certainly give them credit for, for what they've done. But uh, for bringing the term special weapons and tactics and attaching that to a police unit that's a full-time team, uh, I, I believe that credit does go to the LAPD. Yeah, and I think I think like from a historical context, right? So so you look at Black Panther and put Black Panther in in greater context, right? At that point, you're having Weather Underground, 
and you know events where police cars are being blown up. There's a lot of civil unrest, Watts riots. Internationally, you have the Munich massacre. You're having hostage takings. Like it just it kind of sets up this this environment where you know you look at Munich and law enforcement quickly realizes like there can be problems here that we're not prepared for. Correct. And and so it makes sense why they would look at it and say, yeah, we need to do something else. Um, looking back at, at the history also, it, it, talk about the effect of the 84 Olympics, because that seems to be the point in the U.S. where SWAT really explodes onto the scene and, and you see teams popping up kind of all over the place. Right. So, as you said, it was after the, the Munich incident. At, at the Olympics, and then when uh, the city of Los Angeles received the Olympic award for the 1984 games, is in the, in the couple years prior to that, um, that uh, Daryl Gates and other government officials determined that if something like this could possibly occur in the city of Los Angeles, what are we going to do to prepare for it? And that's when LAPD SWAT did all the outreach. So um, a lot of our personnel, uh, you talk about Jeff Rogers and Mike Hillman, um, uh, Al Preciado, uh, Ron McCarthy, uh, a lot of travel to international agencies that had um, uh, experience with counterterror operations. And then that's when our platoon went from a, a tactical team um, that was making entries, but not necessarily hostage rescue capable, to a full-blown hostage rescue capable uh, resources. Yeah, because I mean, it, it, you know, again, in context, that that is kind of the terrorist act de jour for the late 1970s is seize a bunch of people somewhere, demand the release of, you know, a group of prisoners somewhere, right. and, and then try to negotiate your way or, you know, sneak your way out of it. As, as you know, you know, like that, that's the point also that it shifts for the hostage takers. Right. Because you have 2-2 SAS at, at Prince's Gate in London, you have the Entebbe raid, you have GIGN in Bern. Like there's this series of catastrophic failures of hostage takers where the teams start to figure it out. Yes. A and they begin to know how to deal with hostage takers. And all of a sudden it goes from they're negotiating to they are, you know, dying in the airplane because the team has built you know, the strategy. So as, as you guys started to reach out, you were reaching out to, to which teams, like which European teams kind of laid that foundation? Um, so it, it, yes, European teams, moreover, um, our own U.S. Army okay. um, and our U.S. Navy. And then so uh, very close relationships with them. And then from there, I would say uh, GSG-9 initially, uh, GIGN, uh, the SAS, and we've, we've kept a lot of those relationships over the years. Yeah, it seems, um, as somebody who's, who's worked with Deep Platoon for a long time and kind of been around the platoon, there, you are more connected internationally, I think, than a lot of other units, and there is more of an information exchange that takes place. Yes. No, I, I actually keep uh, a lot of correspondence with our resources in the UK, in France, um, actually as far as Dubai, and uh, up in, in Norway, Delta Norge, yep. um, I'll have uh, frequent communication with all of those teams. Yeah, because I think, especially when you look at LA as a, as a potential stage for, for an attack, um, it seems like most of the tactics develop, both, both good guy and bad guy tactics, develop in Europe and the Middle East and then kind of you know, make their way to US soil on both sides of the equation. Right. So it, it, it probably is helpful for you guys to maintain those relationships and understand how the tactics are evolving, I would imagine. Absolutely. And, and real-time debriefs. Um, an incident occurs in Paris. Uh, we have resources that are sending us information about um, you know, what, what occurred. And, and obviously, there's, there's a lot of confidentiality to it. Sure. But, um, but we've got very good communication so we can learn from their um, successes and challenges and, and, and the like. So... Talk to me about the current configuration of the team. How big is it? You know, what's, what's the overall structure look like today? So uh, our structure hasn't changed since, um, I'll say, mid-72, early 72-ish. Um, if we became a full-time team, November 71. So shortly thereafter, we were uh, six squads of 10 each. Uh, each 10-officer squad is divided into two five-officer elements. So if we uh, talk about ranks, I don't want to get like too weird on the on, on the rank uh, structure chart, but we have 48 police officer threes. We have 12 
uh, P3 plus ones, which are element leaders. So if you kind of do the math, you got six squads divided into two five-man elements, right? You got yep. 12 element leaders. And then uh, each of those squads is run by a sergeant or a squad leader. So we have uh, six sergeants that are actual uh, squad leaders, and we have that admin position that can backfill, and then two lieutenants. Two lieutenants rotating responsibility over time. Yes. So Ruben and I are, uh, for the most part, we are exactly 50-50. We'll handle off-hour standby or on-duty incidents uh, every other night, every other weekend, so that at the end of the year, we're we're, we're both up the exact amount of time. And and I think that one of the things I think that's unique uh, about D-Platoon and also about LA Sheriff SCB is you have complete responsibility for the tactical problem in the city of Los Angeles. There is no, there's no, you know, there's no phone home right. after you guys. It, it is your problem ultimately, right? Right. We are the last line of defense. Uh, city of Los Angeles is 468 square miles. Uh, there are 21 geographic patrol divisions. So when something happens in a geographic division, it's actually the commanding officer of that division that is the incident commander. So we <laughs> subordinate to the incident commander. We provide a service. And um, everything that we do, uh, I will, uh, if our personnel are, let's say the element leader and sergeant are devising tactics downrange, uh, they'll make me aware of what those are. And then I go to the incident commander who's going to be that uh, geo division commanding officer and uh, seek that incident commander's approval to implement those tactics. Got it. And and just from a breadth, one of the things that, that I know about the team but I think is really fascinating is your breadth of capabilities. Um, you know, talk about the cadre system and kind of how you have built these individual silos of, of you know, excellence, for lack of a better term. So when, when an officer first comes into SWAT, uh, everyone is a, a, a general, uh, you know, entry team member, um, SWAT element member. And then after about a year in the platoon, then they can uh, branch out and uh, obviously they'll have to uh, prove their their uh, proficiency at the basics, and then they can specialize. And the specialties are uh, as, uh, crisis negotiations is something that uh, our, our crisis negotiators uh, astound me. I will screen an incident where it seems like it's going to be uh, uh, quite uh, challenging, and we'll get there, and next thing I know, our negotiators have this guy walking out, handcuffed, and apologizing. It's... <laughs> They're, they're, they're remarkable. So crisis negotiators is, is one of our, our primary cadres, along with, uh, as expected, snipers, lead climbers. Um, the city of Los Angeles has 52 miles of waterfront between the port of Los Angeles on up through uh, the coastline up to Venice Beach. And so we have a, have a tactical waterborne component that simply brings SWAT to the water. Uh, everything that's expected with, with less lethal or diversionary devices or otherwise uh, on land just uh, those, those members uh, can do that in the water. We have uh, explosive breachers. We have a firearms training cadre. We have weaponless defense, uh, which also handles all of our chemical agent uh, instruction for our personnel. And uh, now we have uh, technology is used more now than ever. Uh, the robotics, uh, pole cameras. Uh, we have a, a SUAS cadre as well, uh, you know, properly licensed FAA 107. And so those are, I think I hit all the cadres. And then we work in four-week deployment periods. So throughout those four weeks, our first week, if, if we'll, we'll letter the weeks, right? The first week would be week A and B, C, and D. Sure. And, and so if you do the math, you know, four-week cycles, there's 13 of them a year, like 52 weeks a year, math works out. So that first week A is what we call our core week. And that's where all of our personnel uh, work during those training days. And we do all of our, all of our firearms training uh, for the various weapon systems. We'll do uh, the movement, whether slow methodical, uh, high-risk warrant, uh, hostage rescue dynamic, work behind explosive breach. But those are our core skills that we do during our core week in week A. Okay. Then, um, then all those cadres that I mentioned, they have their various training days, weeks B, C, and D. So... Um, snipers will shoot out of the helicopter every other Tuesday. Um, they will be on the range or working some you know, version of urban hide, rural hide, uh, Calcan Place, UKD on every other Thursday. Our negotiators have a day in there. Climbers have a day in there. Uh, explosive breachers, whether they're um, building charges or, uh, or, or working with the platoon, um, using charges in conjunction with movement. Uh, technology, uh, those uh, the, the personnel making sure all of our robots work properly and enhancing their ability to maneuver those those devices um, through every variety of terrain. Uh, likewise, with the UAS personnel, our lead climbers, 
Um, and then our medics. I, I forgot our medics. So we have uh, we have about eight EMTs that are you know properly certified EMTs. But our medical package for the platoon actually comes from LA City Fire Department. Hmm, that's interesting. So so um, after um, one of our one of our element leaders was killed in a rescue effort in 2008, Randy Simmons. In fact, uh, that was 14 years ago yesterday, uh, February 7th of 2008. And um, we realized that, that we didn't have the medical support. And, and I mean, to be honest, the medical support at that event would not have saved Randy's yeah. life. He, it was, he took a 380 on the bridge of the nose. Um, but um, we enhanced our, our ability to have medical support downrange with us. So this uh, relationship with LA City uh, Fire Department and their paramedics. So in order to be, it's Tactical Emergency Medical Support, or TEMS yep. is the acronym, and they will be an LA City uh, paramedic for at least five years. Okay. And then they will actually sign a waiver because there's that, you know, the fire department isn't going to go where um, things haven't calmed down, yeah. uh, lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah. And so they'll sign a waiver that I will go wherever SWAT goes. And so they are actually with our personnel on target. And they'll go through a two-week basic SWAT package. Uh, they're not carrying guns. Uh, but they will uh, learn how to use our, our firearms. So if one of us goes down, they can render it safe. They, they, they understand the gear. They wear very similar gear so that they're around us and that while they're watching our movement and uh, they're, they're, they're seeing all the different gear that we use, it's not completely foreign to them. Yeah, so they, can, they know effectively how to move with a stick and stay out of the way and you know, know which way guys are going to go, et cetera. Absolutely. Very, very well said. And then, um, but they'll also do a tactical medic course with LA County Sheriff's Department with their Air 5 guys, yeah, Mountain ESD. Rescue personnel, ESD. Yeah. And um, then after that, then they come to us. And so right now we have eight in that cadre and two of them are on everything we do. So whether it's okay. pre-planned or spontaneous, uh, they're on standby just like we are. They have take-home city cars just like we do. And they will their, their phone will alert in the middle of the night for an incident, and they will roll straight into the job site just like our personnel. And they'll have their medical gear, and typically they'll be in what we call our MedCat, which is a, a Linco bear cap, but it's, it's for the most part an armored ambulance. But it doesn't satisfy all the sanitary requirements because, of, you know, chewing tobacco and, and sunflower yeah, seeds. It's, it's armored and yes. SWAT guys are in it. Yes, yeah, but it does. But it carries the majority of our medical gear, okay. so they're in that on on site, and uh, they're to provide medical care for not only our personnel but also uh, victims and even suspects. So, so it, I mean, with sixty guys, that many cadres, I'm assuming guys will have multiple specialties. Then, like you, you may be a long gun and a medic, or you may is like is is there that kind of crossover in specialty? Yeah. So actually, when I was an element member and an element leader, I was a sniper, climber, diver. Okay. So I did those. I did those three, okay. and then when I came back as a sergeant, um, I was with those cadres as well because I had, you know, obviously a, a deep understanding of those disciplines. Right. So then, within a mission, so if if you get in an operation, you have you know X number of divers there for any operation, or you have X number of snipers, X number of climbers. Just by rotation of the platoon, you're going to have all of those specialties there. Kind of whatever the whatever the operation is. Correct, and and we also uh, try to disperse those specialties throughout the elements and squads. Okay. So that depending on who's on standby, who's up for a barricade, um, that squad will have a cross section of those Got skills. It. Talk to me about the typical D platoon operator, because I think one of the things that is striking when you interact with the platoon is there is a lot of experience in D platoon. I mean, it is not uncommon to meet somebody who's been an operator for 10, 15, 20 years and has, you know, hundreds or thousands of operations. So what is, what is kind of the average D platoon operator look like? So uh, average age in our platoon, I believe is right about 40. Um, go plus or minus a year or two on that, but about uh, about 40 years old. Uh, before someone goes through selection, they're probably gonna have anywhere from eight to 12 years on the LAPD. Um, and when uh, personnel come into our platoon, uh, especially with uh, just in enjoying the operational tempo and the type of work and um, the camaraderie, uh, personnel stay a long time. Uh, I don't, uh, in fact, uh, I'll say 80% of our personnel stay about 10 years. Okay. Well, which, which you know, from, a, from an experience standpoint, you know, somebody at D platoon who has been there for 10 years, that's hundreds of operations. 
and it's hundreds of hours of training or thousands of hours of training, like you, you just start to raise the expertise of the organization, which if, if they didn't stay that long or you had a rotation, wouldn't happen. C correct. And, but if you also, so uh, talk about experience. So operational tempo. We do about, um, as of recent, we do about 120, 125 uh, spontaneous incidents a year. So, and then we'll do probably 30 to 35 pre-planned. And the pre-planned are typically uh, warrant services. So, uh, if you figure that a, a, an officer is going to get 150 uh, incidents, or the platoon will have 150 deployments per year, and an officer makes, let's say, even a third of those, right? That's, that's a good 50. Yeah, it's 50 operations That's, that's 50 a year per for, year, yeah, right? Yeah. So, if you do 10 years in the platoon, and on the low end saying that you'll make a third of those incidents, yeah. you've got 500. 500 operations is an amazing amount of tactical experience. Uh, especially in a modern environment where, you know, there there are not that many full-time teams, and and even the ones that do, don't you know don't have that many operations. Right. So, what is the process to activate SWAT? So perfect timing for this question because the other thing I was going to say is that uh, having having correspondence with a lot of different teams. Um, we'll see that different teams have different uh, criteria for deployment. So when our officers, when I say we have 150 different deployments a year, um, you know, 125 spontaneous and 25 or so pre-planned, um, that there is there are certain criteria that needs to be met for us to even move that that monstrous machine of LAPD SWAT. So let's talk about a spontaneous incident. A uh, spontaneous incident would be, uh, we'll go with like just the the groundwork of an armed barricaded suspect, right? And so the four criteria. Uh, cri crime's got to be committed. Suspect's believed to be armed. He's in a position of advantage. And that position of advantage, we, we use that broad term because that can be anywhere. That can be in the middle of a field of grass. That can be in a home. That can be in a vehicle. Um, he has, he's in a position that, that gives him a tactical advantage. Sure. And you can define that however you want. Um, and then the final thing is refusal to submit. So the, the officers have to try to communicate in some way. Like, no answer at all uh, can be a refusal to sure, submit, yeah. but we at least have to try and get that person to submit to arrest. Got it. So with those, with those four criteria haven't been met, um, and I'll just give the example of, of if, I'm, if I'm on standby and my city phone rings at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'll go down to my, my desk at the end of the hallway, and I've got my little screening sheet, and, um, and I, I, I use that because if I'm, if I'm up at 2 o'clock in the morning and my brain's a little foggy, these are good prompts for me to make sure that I'm answering all the questions. And so, you know, when did that incident uh, originate? Has it been going on for five minutes or has it been going on for two hours? Um, and uh, what's the criminal history of the suspect? What's the target location? Um, and specifics, not just the address. Is it, you know, a unit in a... 300-unit apartment building is a single-family residence, detached garage. Um, so I get some specifics about that. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, weaponry, uh, efforts to communicate, what's the nature of the dialogue. And then once I confirm that we have a crime-committed belief to be armed position advantage if you submit, then I notify my commanding officer. And so with, uh, my, my commanding officer has to approve the deployment of, of our personnel. Now, the only time I will send our personnel immediately upon um, getting the screening is if there is, a, if it's a hostage incident, life in the balance. Sure. And then, and then when I notify the chain of command, it's more of a notification that, yeah, I mean, that clearly, lost, yeah. no one's going to say, no, you shouldn't go to that. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. we, we can. Yeah, we have somebody holding a hostage. Yeah, we can. You know, let me make seven phone calls, and 45 minutes from now, I'll get your right. answer. Yeah, so we can, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, yeah. right? So, so, I'll, so if, it's, if it's a hostage incident, I'll, I'll send personnel immediately and then notify the chain of command, and, and we'll get that machine moving much more quickly. Got it. And your personnel are city car, everything. Like, they're leaving from their home to the location. They're not coming together and right. having to, right. you know, mobilize and all that, right? That's correct. So if, if it's an on-duty incident, we're likely, there, there's, you know, a good cross-section of us are training at a certain venue somewhere, and they can just entrail and figure it out, and, and we'll all go there together. Um, if it's off hours, then we have a standby list where we have 16 for, uh, for tactics, another two for negotiations, a primary, secondary negotiator. And a unique thing about our negotiations, excuse me, about our negotiations profile is that those are actually SWAT officers. We don't have a, a separate yeah. 
cadre of negotiators who are, you know, just negotiators and, and never, uh, you know, working with SWAT. These are actually SWAT cops. Um, and in fact, through our selection process, um, our, our selection is a, is a 12-week course. And the first eight weeks are really where all the testing takes place. And the back four weeks of that, those 12 weeks are um, what, what I call enrichment. And, and one of those uh, weeks in the back four is a 40-hour crisis negotiations course. Oh, okay. Every single one of our personnel goes through a CNT course, crisis negotiations. Yeah. And so they all have a baseline knowledge of crisis negotiations and, you know, just uh, th- things to say, things not to say. Yeah. And, um, Which may be more important. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not always what you say. It's, yeah. what, it's what you're so not it's saying not that matters. So uh, they'll all go through this crisis negotiation course, and then those that after you finish that one year in the platoon and you know prove your um, that you're you're comfortable in, in all the different aspects of, of baseline SWAT stuff, um, you can specialize as a negotiator. So twenty two of our sixty are our negotiators. Oh well. So okay. when we roll so a out a third of the platoon. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost half of the operator level platoon. Correct. And um, and then they'll they'll get enhanced training and and you know they'll attend different symposiums and they have uh, you know um, every, every deployment period they have their their training days where they can debrief incidents that have occurred elsewhere or debrief an incident that we experienced. Uh, we have behavioral science doctors that are attached to us. So when we send out a crisis negotiation package, I know I'm getting really deep into uh, CNT right now. Yeah, but that's I'll, okay. Then. I'll, I'll I'll come back to it. Um, that we have a BSS doc there with us. So they're, oh, they're, they're not actually doing the negotiating. The negotiating is all with our primary and secondary negotiator. We have a supervisor that, that oversees it. But, um, but the BSS doc can uh, look at uh, or listen to um, the nature of the dialogue and, and maybe uh, you know, weave in some, some, uh, some things that the suspect is saying that, that may help our negotiators in, in, in connecting. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that one of the misconceptions about SWAT teams, especially larger agencies like yours, is that you know SWAT is just a bunch of trained killers that are, are going to go out and deal with it tactically. And I think one of the most striking things about your platoon is the emphasis on crisis negotiation. It's the emphasis on you know surrounding call out, and and it's it's really it's a total resolution approach. It's not simply we get there and and everything goes tactical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've, I've kind of derailed. Your original question yeah. was, you know, what do we do when we, when we go, to a, go to an incident? And, yeah. and you're right. We, we go straight to the job site. We don't all, you know, rally at, at the command and, and gather gear and, and go. So everybody has their gear with them. And we have, we have support personnel in our vault that will grab our armor and our truck and everything goes to the field. And then, then on to your, your statement about this um, resolving incidents in the least confrontational manner possible. So there is a, it frustrates me that there is a, a common perception that when SWAT responds to an incident that there's going to be significant property damage and that there's going to be, <laughs> yeah, we, yes, it's yeah, a good, good, good time yeah, to laugh. Yeah, gonna, sh- gonna show up, gonna yeah, break everything. You bet, yeah. and, and, and probably gonna shoot everybody. Yeah. And then um, before the brass even cools on the deck, we're gonna get in our cars and drive away. Yeah. And nothing could be further from the truth. And I'll, I'll talk about the stats of our platoon because I'm, I'm actually very proud of them that uh, we started keeping a database in 2013. Okay. And uh, so we've captured absolutely all of our deployments. And since 2013, I think we're at about 1,150 incidents. Okay. And so if I, if I talk about those 1,150 incidents, we use force of any kind all the way down to wrist lock, twist lock okay. in less than 8% of the incidents. Wow. We use deadly force in less than 1.4% of the incidents. See, I think that, that is, I, I think that, that if the average person knew that statistic, it would stagger them. Because yeah. I do think there's this impression like, oh, yeah, no, everybody's going to get shot. Every, you know, and so Absolutely. one and a half percent of the incidents end in deadly force. Less than. Wow. Less than one and a half percent. And, and, I th- and obviously, we can, we can thank Hollywood and, and all the and fantastic footage of uh, movie scenes of, of all that destruction. And, and, yeah, 85 uh, and, movies that have been made about your platoon, two TV shows, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. They've done a great job yeah. all of a disinformation campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely false. It yeah. doesn't happen that way. Yeah. And, and all, all the, that credit for the, um, our, our, our low statistics of uses of force and, and uses of deadly force, um, that goes to our, our personnel and their commitment to resolving these incidents, least confrontational manner possible, crisis negotiators, um, and especially since about 2016, what's, what's really helped us is all the technology, whether you're using robots, pole cams, uh, UAS, 
Um, those help us search without exposing our personnel. Yeah. It just makes it safer for everybody. Makes it safer for us, makes it safer for the suspect. Um, so we keep on refining our systems and we keep reducing the need to use force. And, and the, the big catchphrase and you know, probably the last couple of years is de-escalation. Yeah. Uh, and it's something we've been doing forever. Yeah. Uh, but, there, but there's also different tools that we're adding to our toolbox that, um, that assist in that. And so there, it's, a, it's a constant pursuit to, uh, to handle the, the more provocative incidents in the least confrontational manner possible. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because in, in talking with you and in talking with guys from the platoon, the, the emphasis seems to be on slowing the entire thing down. Right, the guy's emotional, he's, he's made bad decisions, he's in a bad place, and, and the sooner he gets into a confrontation, uh, you know, one of my friends said a long time ago, Sid Hale said a long time ago, when, when somebody is, you know, in a tactical situation, they have made so many bad choices in their lifetime that the sheriff's department, in his case, is, is at their house with a SWAT team knocking down the door. Right. Right. If you give them 30 seconds to make a decision, they're probably not going to make the right one. And, and it's interesting because as you talk through it, you know, it's, it's crisis negotiation, it's getting technology in, it's, you know, it, it's, it's slowing the whole thing down and delaying this moment when an officer is engaging with the suspect and trying to prevent that from ever happening. Right. Which I think is another thing that, that Hollywood has created kind of this fictitious myth for that it's like, oh, yeah, I know, here they go, they're going right away, and it's, it's, it's just not the case. Right. And, and so, I, like, for, I'll speak for the LAPD, we're the last line of defense, right? So if we don't fix the problem, no one's going to. Yeah. But, um, but I think what's lost in all of that is that we're a life-saving organization. And there's, you know, people look at what SWAT does and they look at armored vehicles and they look at snipers and they look at all these things that, um, that they like to translate into, well, they're, they're going to hurt people significantly or kill them. Yeah. Um, but as a last line of defense, um, we need those things, but we're also a life-saving organization and clearly our statistics prove it. Yeah, it's interesting is, is this discussion of militarization of of law enforcement and military issues, of SWAT specifically, you know, one of the things that people key on is armored vehicles. And it's always struck me as kind of a crazy thought because without an armored vehicle, that's a lethal force engagement. Right. Right. If you put an officer there without an armored vehicle, the suspect is shooting at an officer he may hit. And, and there is no, there's no chance for a resolution at that point. Right. You're going to a tactical resolution. Whereas with armor, you are, all of those things are putting a margin of safety between the suspect and the operator. So that actually brings up a great topic of uh, these, these what I'll call landmark incidents <clears throat> that have, um, have promoted our evolution. So we talked about the 84 Olympics and taking that step from you know, traditional entry teams and some enhanced capability to like full-blown hostage rescue capable. Then um, our tactics adjusted, I'm going to say in the late 90s, uh, one of our element leaders, uh, Ken Thatcher, uh, was on staff at Blackwater. And uh, what, what I like about Blackwater was that they would have, um, like, tactical law enforcement teach law enforcement and military teach military because the crossover for, we'll say, rules and engagement yeah. aren't necessarily the same. But, uh, but the tactics of limited penetration uh, rather than running walls, and, and that, that really changed the profile of our, of our tactics. So hmm. that's a, a, a landmark um, uh, evolutionary time frame in, in our platoon. Then we'll go to 2002, and now, now we get to armor. And armor completely changed the way that we deploy. When I was a young SWAT cop, I mean, we literally had, like, we, call, we actually called it the tomato van. It, was, it, looked like, it looked like a van you would see on the side of the road selling tomatoes yeah. out of the back. Yeah. And it uh, had a gas leak inside, so if you ride around on it too long, you, you're getting a headache. Yeah. Um, and, um, and now all of a sudden we have armor. And so today we have uh, a bear, which is, you know, like the, it's on a Freightliner frame, you know, just a big, big, uh, big bear, enormous armored vehicle. Um, we have four bear cats, uh, and then we have two armored excursions. And so with a fleet of armor, we can park where we need to. And you're right, it is actually de-escalating because we are in a better tactical position. And we've had more than one incident where our personnel have been shot at in the vehicle and haven't returned fire. Yeah. Yeah, but if they'd not been in the vehicle, 
they would have had they, they would have been forced to return yeah. fire. Yeah. Yes, but you have to defend your life and the lives of you know the uh, citizens and your teammates and, and all of that. So um, and I'm not saying that you know we're going to allow a suspect to shoot at our armor sure, un- unendingly. Of course, but yeah. um, but if if we can if we can reposition um, and we can take them into custody without, then then certainly we do, and that's. I think also, you know, one of one of my favorite sayings is the whole point of special tactics is to put the suspect in a position where resistance is futile and surrender is likely. Well said. Right. So the suspect is now in a position when you're in armor, you, you know, you don't have to be a math major to figure out you're probably not going to win the gunfight. Right. Right. Like the, the more distance you place between you and the suspect, the more the suspect has to come to the realization that, like, I, I may not win here. Yes. I'm probably not going to win. And then as soon as he gets to I'm not going to win, then he's, then he's making a decision. Right. Uh, but as long as he thinks he may win, and, and if it is an immediate face-to-face confrontation, then he has it, you know, he's not going to win long-term, but he has a chance of winning the initial engagement. So I, I think that, you know, the ability to, to, again, slow everything down, separate your personnel from the suspect. But it's also, I think, like, you know, you talk about the, the platoon not returning fire in a situation where... They, they could have, certainly. I think that goes into selection too, right? It's, a lot of it is who you pick and their ability to make those decisions on the fly. Yes. And so I, I talked about some of the tenure of our personnel, right? I mean, that, you know, we're you know, 40 uh, plus or minus years old that uh, before you go to selection, you'll likely have eight to 12 years of, of street experience as a, as a police officer. You're, you're seasoned, you know how to handle um, uh, these tenuous incidents in the field. Uh, you know how to you know how to how to talk to people. You you know how to de-escalate, and um, so those are the people we're hiring. And then I've been asked on more than one occasion. You know what 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 who are you looking for when you're looking for a SWAT cop? That's a really good question. What's the profile? What's the what's the personality? Yeah. And and um, so just to tell a quick story is back in October of 2010, HRT you know FBI Quantico was running selection. So we have a great relationship with them, and I went back and joined for their, for their selection. And part of that was, um, so they, they would you know, wake up bright and early the first day and do all these physical um, you know, tests. And then as the day evolved, um, I, I got with, there was a, a, a psychologist, psychiatrist, psychologist, I believe, uh, monitoring, his, his last name is Middleton. So Doc Middleton is, uh, he's kind of just standing back and he's just kind of watching the, the, the personalities of, of the different personnel and uh, selectees and, and how they're interacting. And so I'm having a conversation with him and he says, so yeah, I mean, obviously the first thing we do is, is put them through uh, all of these strenuous you know, physical uh, tests and, and you know, ensure that they're, they're prepared physically for this. He says, but about noon today, we're gonna just sit them down in a room and they're gonna take a raw IQ test. And based on their scores from a raw IQ test, I will give you 80% certainty who is going to make it to day two wow. and who's gonna be done. Man, that's a bold prediction. And, and yes. And, and so and then he went on to explain that when, you, when, when somebody does very well on a raw IQ test, that's someone who, one is he's done the research and he or she has done the research and understands the job that they're applying for. So they've prepared for it. Sure. It also um, enhances their ability to multitask, problem solve, um, be resourceful, think innovatively. and Pay attention to detail. Yes, and, and adjust to the terrain as things change. And, um, and he says, then later on, we'll do, a, we'll do a personality test and, you know, Myers-Briggs and, and I guess, you know, some people speak of the pros and cons of that. So I won't get into, you know, whether you're a florist or a field marshal or otherwise. Yeah, whatever. But, um, and those change from year to year anyway with life experience and formal education and, and, and all that. But, but the raw IQ piece uh, really stuck with me. And so you ask me who we're looking for in a SWAT cop, I want to be smart. And once they're smart, you can build everything else off of that because you'll, you'll see that they, they understand their job taskings and they're going to be committed to it and they're going to understand the organization. And then as they come in the platoon, then it's our responsibility to uh, expose them to the culture of our platoon and our drive for professionalism. And then they assimilate into that as well. And then they also are going to, um, we, we need to create an environment where they feel safe. And I could, you know, talk about, you know, a book by Daniel Coyle, uh, Culture Code, where, sure. you know, our, our personnel need to feel safe to, um, to, to work in this environment. 
and where they can feel safe to come to work. They can challenge the norms. They can um, they can they can bring innovation. Take risks. Um, they feel safe to uh, let's say fail forward. To, yeah. use, to use the phrase. So all of that goes into the personality of the personnel we're looking for. And then whether it's, it's uh, and we want a, a broad cross-section of life experience as well, because I, I continue to talk about crisis negotiations and how much that assists us in, in resolving these provocative incidents. And those broad life experiences are going to help them communicate and understand as they are uh, working through a an incident where I'll say just because you can't, just because you're justified in using deadly force or force of any kind doesn't mean you should. Sure. Right? So if there are other more innovative ways for us to solve the problem, then that's what we're doing, and those are the people we want to hire. Yeah, because, I mean, realistically, a lethal engagement is not good for anybody. Amen it's, to that. Especially now. Yes. Right? Like, it's not, it's, it's bad for the suspect, obviously, because he's going to lose the gunfight. But it's also bad for the officer. It's bad for the department. It's bad for the platoon. It's like there's no, I think there's this kind of misconception that, you know, special tactics teams like want to go out and, and you know, they, they want to go kill people. And, and realistically, having spent 35 years around SWAT teams, there is no lethal engagement where everybody walks away happy. You, you are absolutely correct. Everybody's a loser, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, so, so, so how do you... You've got a slightly older platoon than kind of the, you know, typical SWAT team. You have probably, you know, a little smarter than the average bear operator. How do you maintain very high standards while managing all these A-type personalities? I wish I had the answer to that question. So, <laughs> I mean, if, if you consider, um, obviously we want, we want free thinkers. We want, you know, like I said, smart, innovative. And then we assimilate them into the tradition and culture of our platoon, which is to constantly evolve and find a better way to do things in the, in a, with less and less confrontation. So when you assimilate them into our culture, and then I'll, 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 I'll promote another book here, um, is uh, James Kerr wrote uh, Legacy about the New Zealand All Blacks. Oh, interesting. Okay. Right? And, and this book talks about how um, when they bring someone into their team, how they make them, um, they are immediately educated about the traditions and um, the, the ethos of, of that team and the that culture. culture. Yeah. And so when, when you bring people in and, you know, maybe they, you know, they go, hey, you know, SWAT's a cool job and I want to go through selection and, and they're going to get through selection, but then they realize that um, this is a life-saving organization. Yeah, and I need to be a part of this very honorable team that strives to to accomplish exactly that, saving lives. So then we're also going to promote their free thought, and so as as these these this younger generation with um, a different perspective on resources and innovation and a different way to maybe um, approach a challenge, then we're going to encourage them to to present that, and and some of them work and some of them don't. But I never want to um, to stymie the uh, the the innovative drive of our personnel. So I, I need uh, we're, right now we're running selection. Uh, we're in week four of the of the twelve weeks, and we've got twelve personnel, and uh, we we did a lot of testing on the front end. And all of our hope is that all 12 are going to graduate and that they're going to assimilate in the platoon and they will be successful and productive and contributive team members. And, and I want them to understand immediately what they're getting into. And I also want them to understand that we're looking to them to be the next generation of innovation so that we can continue to uh, not only keep our stats, but improve on those stats of force of any kind less than 8% of the incidents and deadly force in less than 1.4% of the incidents. We can, we can improve on that. But how are we going to do it? And those are the personnel we're hiring. Yeah, so it, it is this, this uh, the Japanese have a notion called Kazen, which is like this idea that you are constantly improving. Right. Continuous improvement, continuously addressing the weakness uh, of the organization, either through bringing in other people, through improving culture, through improving training. And, and it sounds like that's kind of in the heart of everything that you're doing, is like everything can always get a little bit better. Yes, in fact, Kaizen is uh, constant methodical, yep. right? So there's a constant methodical drive to improve. Yeah. Yeah. It, 
talk to me. So, so the culture, obviously, of the team is essential, and I'm a big fan of, of, of culture as, as a concept. I think that that is ultimately what drives our behavior is, is this notion that, you know, I, I always tell the story, like, you, have, you and your friends have a culture when you play poker, and you and your parents have a culture when you go to church. And those two cultures are completely different, and there aren't necessarily written rules, but it's very clear to you that some behaviors are not acceptable at one versus the other. Well said. And, and when, when you are bringing people into your culture and educating them, um, <clears throat> you're setting expectations, you're setting norms, right? But you're also setting an understanding of the relationship between people. How do you maintain for lack of a better term, a familial environment, right? Because tactical units are obviously, the guys are very closely bonded. There's, there are close relationships. How do you maintain that closeness and still maintain standards and, and people's need to meet standards? So the good thing is that when we select personnel and they're going to go through selection, and uh, well, we select our personnel to start our course, and then they're gonna go through selection. Um, there's a personality in them that makes them want to be the part of a team, right? We're, sure. We're, we're, we're hiring smart individuals, but not to be individuals. They need to be a part of the team. They need to be confident and be able to stand out and do what's right all the time, but they also need to be, there, there's a drive in that personality to want to be a contributive uh, member of the team. Um, and the team needs the support of the team. And in fact, um, when um, some of our, our personnel, we'd, you know, we'd, we're involved in a lot of stuff and, and some of our guys are gonna, gonna get significantly injured. And there's a drive for them to wanna come back because they wanna be a part of the team, they wanna continue to contribute, they want the team to know that they still wanna be there and still contribute to the team. So. Um, whether it's something that I, I can do or, or that supervision can do to ensure that, that people continue to contribute to this team, um, I, I think the bigger part of it is that the team takes care of that, that that's the team culture, that we have element leaders that, that um, lead their personnel and keep them engaged in the need to be a member of a team and contribute to the team. And a term I use is, and I don't mean it in a sexist way at all, but I say take care of the man next to you better than yourself. Yeah. Right? And I use that term, you know, yeah. man or woman. But, um, and in fact, I'll, uh, the guys probably get, get tired of hearing me say it, but I'll say take care of the man next to you more than yourself. Because if, somebody's ta- if you're taking care of somebody else, somebody's also taking care of you. Yeah. And if your only concern is taking care of yourself, then this is the wrong place for you. I don't need you in this platoon so you can only take care of yourself. Go, go find another job where you, where you can just, just go do your thing. It's interesting because, you know, when you think about that culture, that's going to carry over very well when you have an incident, somebody's injured, you have a shooting, whatever. How, how you know, as a leader of a unit that is, is engaging and, and has shootings and recently had somebody shot, how do you manage that, the load on the individual that occurs when an event like that occurs? That's another question that I wish I had the answer to. Um, a, a lot of, you know, you, you, we've got a lot of tenure on our platoon, so we're gonna, we've got, you know, literally generations of, of uh, you know, some, some older personnel that uh, have been through some things and they're gonna respond um, differently than maybe someone who um, is influenced from other things that maybe you or I don't understand. Sure. Um, so I'll, I, I could talk about uh, one of our guys, and I'll, I won't name names here, Yeah. Um, but uh, Dan Sanchez, um, he, just, <laughs> he just retired uh, this week. And uh, Dan did almost 22 years with our platoon, and, wow. and people ask me to describe Dan. Dan wants, his life is drink coffee, chew tobacco, read the Bible, CrossFit workouts, be around his family, and go to SWAT barricades. Six things, simple. And then we have other personnel that are, they're, they're constantly swiping the internet and they're looking for you know, that dopamine hit of likes from strangers sure. and, and yeah. things that I will never understand and I'm not gonna try and understand it. But, but they just have different influences that um, are going to impact the way they respond to different um, significant events. 
And so when you've got somebody that, that's you know, swiping different blog sites and seeing what other people are saying that they're completely disconnected from our platoon, but maybe they're, they're making a comment that yeah, the Monday, I even, the Monday morning quarterback. Yeah, and I don't even know those comments exist because I'm not the guy going on those blogs. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's it's you know it's 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 literally generational. You've got a, a younger group of guys that are are coming up through our platoon now that are influenced by things and social media. Yeah. That uh, that are more tenured guys just aren't paying attention to. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the you know historically your job has happened. Not, not in secret, but largely out of the public view, right? Like a SWAT incident would happen, it would be reported in the news, and unless it went you know, particularly well, particularly bad, it didn't get a lot of coverage, and there was no, you know, no after effects. Now, everything is videotaped between body-worn cameras and people with cell phones. Everybody is, is you know, a, a tactical genius that is going to critique the team's every action uh, that's got to put a load on the individual operators. It, it does. And, and like I said, I, I think it's more the, the younger generation that's actually watching all of that stuff. Um, but another frustration uh, for me will be uh, that some personnel feel a need to post things online that don't need to be online, that um, there's this need to share when... No, it's the dopamine hit. I don't, yeah. yeah. Uh, when, uh, and yeah I, everybody I'm, look at me, I want, you know. I, I'm, I'm trying to be kind. Tell um, me you like me. Yeah, yeah. so my, my frustration is that when things get posted that don't need to be posted, that, and you're right, that, that dopamine hit of, of likes, um, but you, you actually just said it um, a couple sentences ago about what happened to staying in the shadows and being the quiet professional with the heart of a servant. And um, in fact, we were having a conversation about social media and posts that maybe should not be not have been posted um, by um, a particular platoon member that's now retired. And um, in the office uh, with with some of our our guys, and I'm babbling a little bit just because I don't want to be. I'm, I'm trying to dance around this. Yeah. But I love I love the statement of one of our element leaders, and he said, "I didn't know that there was an expiration date on humility." And, mm. and he was talking about, uh, we, were, we were talking about this younger generation that hasn't known life without social media. Yeah. And so now you've got this generation that is so pulled to social media that, that they just, they don't know the difference. They like, what do you mean I can't post that? Yeah. And so when, when it's something that it, it's just organic to you, when you've, you've grown up with social media, now you're an adult and more social media. But, um, but how do we... So it's like people were making excuses that, well, they, they just don't know the difference, so yeah, they're going to post stuff because it's what they do. But if the postings aren't humble and professional, then, then why are we doing it? So I didn't know there was an, ex- an expiration date on humility. And so that, that promoting the – in fact, I would love to have it as an interview question for selectees that would you still want to come to our platoon if you could never tell anyone that you worked here? Yeah. If, if you had to just, you know, I'm a cop in the city of Los Angeles, and never tell anybody that worked at LAPD SWAT. Yeah. You still want to be here. That, that's the person I want. I want someone that's willing to, to go the extra mile, stay in the shadows, have the heart of a servant, and just provide that service to the city of LA without any personal acknowledgement. That's fantastic. Um, I think, why don't we move on to the kind of final I've got a series of rapid-fire questions for you. You know, 10, ten words or less or, you know, short-sentence answers um, and just kind of see what your, what your thoughts are. Um, what is your most important habit? I don't, I don't think I can... How about quirk? <laughs> That's a fine line, yeah. Yeah, a habit to quirk. It's kind of the opposite it, sides of the same Important thing. habit. I, so uh, something that like, I'll do every day is I do one um, CrossFit-type workout for every day of the year. Um, and it's just a personal discipline thing, mm-hmm. right? So if I miss a day, i got to make it up. If I miss three days, I've got a few days that are yeah. going to suck. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and my daughter's actually uh, uh, taken to that as well. So it just shows that discipline, that daily discipline. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to sacrifice maybe some quality to, for quantity, but um, but it keeps you on track. keeps you keeps you from going too far, yeah. um, too long without working out. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, actually a really interesting way to look at that. I like that. What, in your opinion, what's the difference between a leader and a manager? 
So a leader is going to uh, foster loyalty and commitment to the completion of goals for the, um, for the betterment of the team, where a manager, a manager is going to measure with, uh, these, with various uh, metrics that are quantifiable and impersonal. What's, what's the best book you've read on leadership? I, I keep going to uh, Daniel Coyle and Culture Code. Uh, I think we've, I've had some, some personnel issues in the platoon, and I I've, I've wonder what has, uh, what has prompted that, and is there something that I can do? And, um, and that book talks about how you need to create an environment where your personnel feels safe, yeah. safe to uh, challenge the norms, safe to come to work and, and bring innovation, uh, safe to fail forward. Um, I, I know there's a lot of great books on leadership, and, yeah. I, and I've read a bunch, but, but for some reason that one's always in, in, the, in the front of my head. What do you think the most important characteristic of an effective leader is? Selflessness. I think that if you're selfless, that your team, know, your, your team knows that, um, that, that you are there for them, not yourself, and if you're selfless, you're also committed to the, the technical knowledge, the tactical knowledge, um, all of, to preparing yourself to serve your team uh, as effectively as possible. I love that answer. Um, what's your current favorite online resource, website, or podcast? So there's like professional and personal, right? So professionally, um, it, pretty simple. Uh, Gordon Graham, Lexapol, right? Police One, Case Law. Um, you know, the Fourth Amendment, uh, all, all, the, all of the things that we need to know so that we do it right. Sure. Because the public deserves that. And then personally, um, YouTube, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if, if I'm fixing something on my motorbike, yeah. I go to YouTube. If I got to change a garbage disposal and I'm not quite certain what to do with that, YouTube. I love it. I know it's stupid. No, it's, it's, it's a fair point. Um, you obviously have a lot of responsibilities. One of two lieutenants over LAPD SWAT, you have a lot of responsibility. At any given point, you have responsibility for the tactical instance in the city. What keeps you awake at night? It's wondering what we're not prepared for. If there's, there's all these things that are happening around the world, and I think, as I mentioned, we've got great relationships with, with a variety of teams around the globe. Um, so staying connected, and, and what are they doing that we need to look to, but what is the incident that's gonna to come to Los Angeles, and when it lands, we're not prepared. Okay, Lee, final question. What's the most profound memory of your career? Um, so that, that's, that's tough to, to narrow it down to one. I mean, I can, we talk about, you know, like when Randy was killed, RJ was killed, or, or you know, Louie died, and, and how it, it recalibrates how you, you take care of your personnel. But if I'm going to say something that's, that's had an impact on my career that, that took it in a direction that I didn't see coming, um, I'm going to talk about a failed rescue effort on July 10th of 2005. And um, in, in that, after that rescue effort, um, I, uh, a little bit revealing here, um, I, I questioned if I was the right guy to remain as an element leader uh, in, in SWAT. And so it was after that incident that I took the sergeant's test. Uh, before that, I was gonna be, you know, Lee McMillian SWAT element leader for, you know, a bunch of decades and then retire and, and, uh, and, and that would be the end of it. But that um, having that incident in the back of my head and, and wondering, you know, am I the right guy? I figured I'll make sergeant. Um, I'll go back to patrol. I'll be a patrol sergeant and, and do my career there, and just um, and and just live out the rest of my LAPD career. Uh, you know, just doing regular police work, and it, it's an honorable thing to do. And, and patrol needs good sergeants, and and I, I wanted to be a good sergeant. Um, but just with uh, you know good timing and cosmic energy, um, I was able to come back to SWAT. Um, in fact, my partner now, Ruben Lopez, um, was the lieutenant in SWAT at the time, and he's the one that hired me back as a sergeant. And then, as I as I was back as a sergeant, I um, uh, just kind of the next next natural step would have been to take lieutenant's test, and I did. And then um, so I went back out and 
And, um, and then our commanding officer was Ed Prokop, and he hired me back as a SWAT lieutenant. And I think that that, that one incident, um, not only did I, I learn an, an, an awful lot about myself and, um, and, uh, and priorities, uh, but it, it uh, took my career in a different path that I, I had no intention of going um, the, the morning of that, that event. But the evening of that event, you, you start thinking of um, maybe some other things that, that you should be doing. Do you um, mind sharing what happened? So it was a father who was holding his, his daughter hostage, and um, he had actually assumed the, the, the nom de plume of Tony Montana from Scarface. So he would only uh, respond to our negotiators as, uh, you know, for, you know, Tony or Mr. Montana. Um, he had an office and a used car lot that had uh, the desk uh, set up like, like Scarface in the movie and a monitor behind him with a split screen and all these, all these surveillance cameras. Um, one of our uh, Sierra teams um, was, was looking in through a window and at one point he took a poster and, and put a, a Scarface poster over the window. And ultimately, he came out to where uh, I had the emergency rescue team on, on the, the backside. And he came out uh, holding Susie in one arm and, and uh, reached for his pistol. And then um, one of our, our, our guys in the, the hatch of uh, the armored vehicle um, tried to resolve through, uh, through shooting him. But uh, it, was a, it was a missed shot. And then he ultimately uh, ran back in the office with his daughter um, shooting back at us. So as we went to effect that rescue, uh, one of our guys, Dan Sanchez, was shot in the shoulder. He was reaching for a flashbang and actually uh, took one in the shoulder. Uh, I mean, completely noble. He continued on and, and deployed the flashbang and, and went in the room um, with uh, Bob Gallegos Jr., uh, Bill Casey. Uh, there was, as I mentioned, Dan Sanchez and Eddie Perez. Um, another element leader on that was Rick Anzaldo. Um, but uh, ultimately, um, uh, Susie Pena, 19 months old, was killed. And uh, absolutely horrific. And um, just those are the things that help you recalibrate, right? One of your guys got shot, uh, failed rescue effort. Um, what could I have done differently? And uh, is this the right place for me? I think that is a fantastic place for us to stop. And I appreciate you sharing it with us. Uh, Lee, I, I so appreciate you coming on and, and being on the debrief with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Absolutely my honor.